Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. Lock the gate! All right, let's do this. How are you? What the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck sticks? What the fuck stirs? What the fuck nuggets? What the fuck tuckians? Oh, man, I haven't used that one in a while. I am Mark Marin. This is WTF. I appreciate you being here. Welcome to the show. Uh, what's going on? I can't see. I can't see right now. I'm wearing my glasses and I'm wearing my clip-on sunglasses because... I just got my eyes dilated. I went to the eye doctor. I went to see uh, my uh, my Jasbo doctor, my Jasbo optometrist, Dr. Elliot Kane. Yeah, man, cool man, cool man, cool man, Elliot Kane. Dude's a saxophone player, man. He's got a little trio going on. He's got a few albums I've talked about him before, and he's probably in his 60s, but he talks all groovy and shit, and it's always good to see him. I was a little mellow, and he thought I was being... You know what I'll tell you about in a minute. Today on the show... Kathy Griffin is here. I do want to make note and want you to make note, mental note, uh, that this interview was recorded before Joan Rivers passed away. Otherwise, Kathy obviously would have spoken about it because she has spoken about it. But uh, it's great talk. Kathy Griffin, I I don't think you guys knew that I kind of started out with her. We go back a bit, a bit, not a lot, but a bit. We definitely went different directions, obviously. But uh, we're all in show business. Isn't that true, people? Isn't it true? I'm going to be doing the Oddball Fest uh, up at the Shoreline Amphitheater tomorrow night. That's in Mountain View, California. I'll be at the uh, Verizon Amphitheater in Irvine on Saturday. I will be at the Trippany House. These are important dates. If you're in L.A. or you're traveling to L.A. and you want to come hang out with me, this is a cheap ticket. These are workshop shows. I Usually, I'm trying to polish up a nice hour. Uh, for next year's tour and for the New York Comedy Festival and maybe try some new stuff. But the Trippany House is a wonderful place to see me. It's a small theater. It's at the Steve Allen Theater and they have a parking lot. So I can't, uh, I can't, I can't pitch it enough. I'll be at the Los Angeles Podcast Festival on September 27th doing a live podcast. You can go to LAPodfest.com or WTFpod.com for that information. And two big shows at the New York Comedy Festival on November 7th at the Skirball Center. Uh, if you have not gotten tics or tickets for that, they added that second show and it's almost sold out. So don't wait any longer. Oh shit, Comics Come Home, November 8th in Boston, Massachusetts. That's a big show. Uh, what? that? Okay, so there you go. That's what I'm doing. Onward, onward. It's cool, man. Dr. Elliot Kane, my, my jazz optometrist. 
Yeah, you know, he's doing a music thing and he's got his uh, he's got his eye doctor practice going on. But I was feeling a little low when I went in there and I was feeling a little, yeah, it was like three in the afternoon. I'm, I was tired and, you know, I'm trying, you know, he's trying to get these things to, you know, the lens thing where he's switching back. Good. No, yes, no, yes. One, two, two, one. It's taking a long time and I'm starting to, to feel aggravated and anxious. And I'm like, what's going on, man? Why can't we nail this thing down? He's like, don't worry, man. It's cool. Take some time. I'm like, okay, all right. He says, how your eyes been? I said, well, you know, sometimes it seems like some days are better than others. Is that possible? Sometimes I have a hard time kind of focusing on far away things. Sometimes they seem good. Maybe it has something to do with me paying attention to it. But but sometimes they're just not, you know, they're just, you know, this day to day, it seems. Some days are better than others. He said, yeah, man, that's the way it is with the, with the mind, the soul, the eyes. And I'm like, yeah, man, I, I guess you're right. That is the way it is. So we went through all this stuff with my eyes and it just, and I'm like what is going on? What is it is it that much worse? Is what's what's going on? He goes, "Well, you're you're getting old. You're getting older. My eyes are getting old. I do not like thinking about it. I'm not adverse to thinking about age, but I do not like to think about it necessarily." And I always wondered, you know, my mother always used to tell me, like, she she would tell me, like, I don't feel my age. I don't feel old. I feel 20-something. And I'm like, all right, well, that's a, a little disconcerting. It's a little uncomfortable. But but I, I guess I get what you mean. But I now, I'm, you know, I'm 50. I'm going to be 51 in a couple weeks. So I'm getting old. I get it. Every once in a while, I'll walk by the mirror and I'll be like, who is that guy? And for that split second, I saw me for exactly who I was with no filters. I'm okay with it. Uh, I still have a, a, a dream that someday my, I'll have six-pack abs, but they're, they're, unless they happen in a dream, I don't know how they're going to happen at this point. God damn it, I need to start running again. God damn it. I would almost think whoever this guy is who decided to hand deliver a card to my, uh, to my home, uh, I don't encourage it. It's sort of odd. He brought me, he got me a little card, but uh, yeah, what did he say? Hello, dear Mark Marin, my name is so-and-so, Andy so-and-so. I am 19 years old, currently visiting Los Angeles, and I'm a big fan of yours, and I'm considering uh, pursuing a comedic career and consider you one of my influences to do so. I've emailed the WTF podcast, but got no response. I was also told where you live at in Highland Park, but didn't want to simply knock on your door because I feared you would either call the police or think I was another one of the creepy fans you've been known to uh, run into. I'm writing you this not for an autograph or a picture or anything like that. I would, I would simply just like to sit and talk with you, hopefully for a extended period of time. Also, since this may not be your address, although the WTF podcast bumper stickers on the car outside would suggest otherwise i'm i'm not too comfortable giving al my phone number he's got no problem walking onto my property and dropping me this card that says he wants to sit down for an hour but you know just in case someone else gets hold of this he does not want to leave his phone number he wants to make it clear to me so please contact me on twitter and he gives me his twitter handle there please respond as soon as possible thank you andy i'm responding do you hear me, Andy? I'm not comfortable with this at all, Andy. I'm not comfortable with the fact that, you know, you just tracked it down, tracked me down. You got a nice card. All right, see, this is where it cuts both ways. I, 
yeah, I appreciate the sentiment, but you can't say you're not a creepy fan and then tell me that you want to just hang out for an hour, but you didn't want to knock on my door, but you had no problem putting, you know, coming up to my mailbox and looking at my car and shit. But the bottom line is, Andy, who did you think was going to get your phone number? That to me was the rub there. Like, I don't want to be weird. And uh, this is weird. I just came to your house. I hand over this. I looked in your car and I told you I want to hang out with you for an hour, but I don't want to knock on your door. But just in case, I'm not going to leave you my phone number. Well, that's where you blew it, Andy, because I was going to call you. Good luck with the comedy thing. I, I've, I, generally, I don't know what you would do. I, I mean, I don't, I don't know what I would say to, to somebody trying to start out for 45 minutes. Anything that I, I mean, I say it all here anyways. You know, you just got to try it. All You know, if you want to try comedy, that's all you can do is you can just, you know, go find an open mic, get on stage, put your three or four jokes together. You don't got to be up there three to five minutes. You can get off in, in 40 seconds if you want. No one's going to judge you. You know, that's what it's there for. Go try it. And if it sucks, don't do it again. But if it sucks, but you're hooked, God bless. Good luck. Godspeed. Welcome to the life. I believe I have said that before. So I didn't talk about Red Rocks. I did not talk about Red Rocks. I was uh, I did the Oddball Fest last weekend uh, in Red Rocks at the, I guess you would call it the Red Rocks Amphitheater, but for those of you who don't know, it's just outside of Denver, and it is an amphitheater, an amphitheater that was carved out of the rock right in the middle of the mountain. It was spectacular. I That was the reason I took that gig. I just wanted to play there. I wanted to be... I wanted to feel Red Rocks. I mean, this place has been around since the early 1900s. It's been, uh, it's, it's community oriented when they're not doing rock concerts. They do a lot of, they do movies during the summer. They do local events. Uh, it's, it's a well-used and well-lived uh, performance venue. If you could call it a venue, there's sort of like caves underneath it where you walk from one side of the stage to the other. It's all carved out of the mountain. People like Hendrix played there in like 68. The Beatles were there on, I think on their first U S tour, the dead was there. You two filmed one video. I think it was um, Sunday, buddy Sunday, maybe, but it's famous, man. Everyone has played there. Richard Pryor played there. I mean, the history of the place is phenomenal. There's a mystical vibe to being, you know, on the stage that's in this amphitheater carved out of the desert rocks. I don't know if they're desert up there, but it, they're red rocks. So they look like desert rocks. And it's just sort of on either side, there's sort of a stone-faced cliff almost. And there are those moments where you're thinking like, these rocks have 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 bounced off some of the greatest sounds and feelings and 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 notes in the world they've absorbed it or moved it around you know that there was this moment when i was on stage thinking like man if these rocks like if that one rock on stage left up there that one ridge you know could talk to that other ridge i wonder what kind of conversations they would have shared you know probably a few like Oh, no way. This is crazy. The rocks would have talked. I just pictured these two cliffs going, oh, fuck, yes. How is this even possible? Two big rocks, cliffs, just listening to Pryor. But at some point, one of the one of the cliffs must have said to the other, what is this bullshit? John Tesh, I, why is this guy here? What's happening? Will they just book anybody at this place now? This is ridiculous. Hendrix was here. Pryor was here. The Beatles were here. The Dead was here several times. John Tesh, what's happening? And the other rock probably said, I don't know, man. Give him a chance. It's kind of interesting. It's kind of goofy. 
He's, he, look at that piano instrument. I've never seen anything like that before. You have seen too many shows. You've gone soft, Rock. And the other guy says, listen, don't talk to me like that, Rock. I enjoy some of this new agey type of noodling. Oh, you and I aren't speaking. So that's what I know. I know that both sides of uh, the two sides of Red Rocks are probably not talking to each other right now. And it's over the John Tesh issue. That's my speculation. But the other uh, interesting thing is that, you know, I was on that show with, uh, it was me, uh, CK, Aziz, Sarah, Whitney Cummings, Sarah Silverman, Whitney Cummings, uh, Dimitri Martin, um, and Hannibal Burress, and me, and Louie, and Sarah, and Dimitri a few years later. You know, we all started together in New York, and I hadn't seen Dimitri in a long time. And uh, there have been times in my life where he's rubbed me the wrong way for reasons that were completely my own and projected. But he did a great set, and it was very sweet. And, uh, and, you know, it was interesting because we were backstage just watching, um, I think, Sarah was on. Brody Stevens was there uh, hosting. And Dimitri goes, it's just so wild, man, to, to see you out there and to know that when I was starting out, you know, I would go watch you at Luna, you know, just being, you know, who you are. And now we're, we're here, you know, and you were just standing out there just being who you are, you know, and this is like, what, 20 some odd years later. It's just, it's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing. And I'm like, yeah, it is kind of. And, you know, and I really appreciated that he brought me down to that because, you know, you go through life and you just sort of like doing it, doing it, doing it, next thing, next thing. And sometimes you don't take time, man. I got to take time to be like, holy shit, I'm living an amazing life and I'm grateful for that. I can do that. And I just did it right here publicly for you. Now, moving on. Enough of that emoting. I can make that. I can make those feelings of gratitude into discomfort in a second. Uh, Just like that. That's the magic of me. I got a genuine, pleasant feeling. Why not just send that through the Marin Mill and turn it to garbage? Okay, as I said earlier, this conversation with Kathy Griffin was recorded uh, before Joan Rivers passed away because Kathy um, certainly would have discussed that, but it was not uh, a reality when we talked. And uh, I hope you enjoy this. This is a let's go now to uh, me talking to uh, to Kathy Griffin, the amazing Kathy Griffin, the infamous and uh, and uh, unique Kathy. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of like literature. And now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called the Foxed page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Fox Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Fox Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcast. Podcasts. Griffin. We Kathy, have, it's nice to see you. It's fantastic to see I, you. Y- you know, my memories of you are old. 
But I, I can't believe that you opened, literally opened the door with our, our quote tension. So obviously you want to go there and it's a no, it's you know, a, it's I'm a not bad the memory. Secrets. You're the bad, one with secrets. I have no me. secrets. Well, I, that's I'm, not what I heard. What are you talking I about? I hear you're stockpiling secrets in a, in a quest to get more famous. No, I wish I could. I, made that I up. wish totally I had made more. That up. I dig them out of me. I totally made that. You're up. the way famous one, but here's my memory. Yeah. That uh, I know exactly when it happened. Go ahead, because I do too. You do? Aspen Comedy Festival? Yes. In, oh my in a God. hotel room, of course. It was you, me, Garofalo. I mean, do, we don't need to say the name of the lady, right? But there was a lady that you were sing, seeing. You, we were on a show, and you closed your set by ripping your shirt open, and I made some sort of comment. I thought I think I made, I said you're using your boobs as props. I think and that, and that's Wait, was I even wearing a bra? Yes. Okay, because I'm more proud of the fact that I, at a later time, <laughs> decided to do it. Don't worry about it. Is this for Pat Oswald's pot? Yeah. What, what happens? It's for anyone's pot. Honestly. Go ahead. We're okay. um, there was later a time when I felt I was so artsy that yeah. I was then doing it without a bra, uh-huh. and I would do it to a Celine Dion song. Right. And, and what my, was the point? I've the bit to... was that Celine Dion took me to a place where I felt so free as a woman and an artist <laughs> yeah. that I felt that clothing was no longer necessary okay. as a barrier between me and Celine. Uh-huh. And of course, it was yeah. the theme for Titanic. Now I, I would do something a little more modern. But um, I also got in trouble that night for taking all all of my top off. I, I think I, I think I went down to underpants. But at least I wore Maybe a bra that's that night. Right. Maybe yeah. that's right. But you were a different person then. This was before you were it's all a, a, a stunning princess of media. <laughs> <laughs> you were kind but of nerdy. You wore I, glasses. Yes. Which, You're, by the way, which I still need. Mm-hmm. And I'm like one of those assholes that like sort of hides them. And then when the movie starts, I put them on. But And then as I'm walking that's out. That's not an asshole. That's an old lady. Yeah, I'm an old lady now. <laughs> and I'm so old that yeah. I actually lost my expensive... Um, reading glasses? The reading ones. Uh-huh. So now I just go to Dwayne Reed sure. and get the cheapies. Just like every but mom. But the distance ones are Versace. <laughs> okay, good. Okay, well, just as long so as you know. got balance. All right, so take me back to the hotel room because it's starting to come back in flashes. Was it the Diva in San Francisco, the Hotel Diva? It was in it was in Aspen. Oh, I Aspen. Thought. Okay. Wasn't so, it where we had the argument? Was it in there? Like you remember something heated? Now it's starting to come back to me. So Garofalo was there, Katsky was there, you were there, right. and it was a party. God, none and, of these people are even talking to me anymore. Really? Why? I don't know. Well, I, ha- I mean, you're busy, or is it personal? No, no. I think it's personal. Really? It's personal. Did you alienate everyone but your gays? I alienated everyone except my my mother and the LGBTQIA2 community. And no, I just, um, I am honestly excited to see you because I have such a great nostalgic feeling about those times. And anybody from our, as we called ourselves the posse, which is very pretentious. It was a generation. It was the first wave of alt comedy yeah. in Los Angeles. I was in New York, but you were here but you with were Lapidus. In, yeah, right, no, you I, were in the group. Yeah. Whenever you came to town, right. you were doing a set. That's right. And Wait, let's first, let's figure out with okay. the tension. What was the argument about? I and think the argument was about, I think you were having an affair with Tracy and then I think you slept with a different girl and mm-hmm. I found out Yeah, and I think I'd like to take the credit myself but I think I may have included another a couple of the other gals from our group uh-huh. and busted you out and like called you out on it at some party and then you were like who are you to call me out on it right. and I was saying Tracy's my friend and I'm laughing because like I said I don't think any of those girls even talk to me anymore <laughs> so once again I have a very long history of sticking up for people who then really couldn't give two shits I, about me I remember but- <laughs> I think I know what it was I think it was because you know before I was I was with somebody else when Tracy and I had a fling that's right and I think that you know that it came up because we were all yeah okay but I just want no to say secrets. this though no like, secrets I but thought also, it was about material 
Material? Oh, maybe. I thought it was me judging you in some harsh way. Oh, God. I was so used to you and Louie and David Tell being so mean to me. You guys were all so vicious. <laughs> were we? Oh, my God. And, you know, I remember I was bombing every single set. And you right. guys were crushing every set. I so, think that's what it was. Yeah. What the fuck is she doing? Right. So for me to be part of a lineup with, let's go over it. Like a typical lineup at Aspen would be like Louis C.K., David Tell, you. Yeah. Um, who else In the would 90s. crush? DiPaolo. Yeah. Like DiPaolo would yeah. crush. Adam Ferraro would crush. Right. Like these were guys that were like, boom, getting big laughs, walking off stage, and then getting freaking deals. Right. Like, or meetings with networks. And then I go up there with my little stories. But Here's you were... my story. I'm a raconteur. And then, le- and bombing so badly that I remember one time Nick DiPaolo was mad. Yeah. He had to follow me. Because as I walked off all you could hear was the clump of my doc martens <laughs> yeah and you always get at least a thank you good night applause right i was bombing like so badly that people were just conversing like i will say i was lucky enough not to have hecklers right but people would just check out and so i was like thank you aspen and you just hear the doc martens clump it was off a stage. hard situation and no you guys killed it i, I don't you know I, the, they did i don't know i think i was in between Norm you and mcdonald them. would like destroy their but you were choosing to do something you knew was tricky I it's mean, all you, I knew how to do. Right. But you weren't, you do, I don't know that you were even considering yourself a stand up comedian at that point in a well, way. I, I mean, I, I felt I was, but remember, my background was groundlings. And I went about it, as my mother would say, ass backwards. I really did start out as well, an actress. When did you come out here? I mean, wait, well, first of all, let's I never get, did stand I don't know up. anything about you. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I know the oh, world I think you does. Do. I think you do. I know some things. All right. You know things that other people don't know. I remember you around. You were, had an edge to you. You were you were kind of, I remember you as being sort of angry. Mm-hmm. And I remember like being around you. I always felt that, that the, uh, we were about to fight. Yeah. But I think that was the way you were. Well, look, I'm going to be honest. I really resented you guys because I felt like, and I, I kind of think this is still true. I felt like the guy, <laughs> no, no, this is yeah. a good thing. I felt like the guy comics, you and your crew mm. were very good at like sticking together and having each other's back and supporting each other. And one of the reasons, honestly, that I that I am sort of associated with the gay community is it's one thing I admire about the gay community as well. I feel that they get together, they actually make progress. And I feel that unfortunately, as a militant feminist, my issue with women is often we tend to be the cliche and we tend to let ourselves get yeah. divided and conquered. Yeah. And one thing about your group whether you whether I felt you guys were being nice to me or not is I really would watch from a distance and go god every set they support each other every set they're giving each other crap and they're joking around and I felt like with the girls and there were so few of us I felt like Sarah Silverman was very much in your club Right. She, you know, she well, was she grew gorgeous. Up with us. And, yeah, she grew up with you and she's gorgeous and I wanted to be her. Yeah. And Janine was very much in your club because she was, you know, reality bites and she was edgy. But and, we grew up with and, her too. Right. It's a weird and, thing. and everybody was talking yeah. about her. And and I didn't quite know where I fit in. So I thought, well, maybe if I just keep hanging out with them, they'll like me. But I never could get that style of like crusher club comedy that Jokes. you guys had. Yeah, yeah. Just a nailing, a, narrow, you were not a comedy club person. Correct. But, but, but you came up, when did you come to LA first? I came to LA in like 78. Oh my God. From where? From Illinois. You grew up in what, Chicago? I grew up in I grew up in Forest Park, Oak Park, never Chicago proper, but I grew up uh, grade school, Catholic school in Forest Park. I have left the church, just in case you're. I'm, I was assuming. Wondering. Yeah. I've left in a big way. But you grew up in a real Catholic family. Yeah, real Catholic. How real, many kids? Youngest of five. Oh total Irish alcoholic. Full story. Um, Both your parents or just your dad? Both. 
Both alcoholics. And, yes. And, um, From Ireland. The, and then the one priest who was an uncle that kept getting moved parish to parish. One of those. Yeah. Still alive? No, he passed away of AIDS. Was there... Really? Yeah. No kidding. Right. That's a, So you've got the history of church in your blood. You've yes. got the history of the Catholic Church. I remember Father Porter. Yeah. Okay, so if you ever did the Boston Circuit, remember that big story? Sure. And that started from the old-timey personals. Someone uh-huh. wrote in and wrote, do you remember Father Porter? And then that was, I don't want to say the start of it, but I mean, that was sort of a very public way to- What was that other one from Boston? Shandley? What was his name? I, the I one don't that, know, but the... every, every archdiocese has one. And, you know, a lot, a lot of my comedy, I mean, a lot of why I've become sort of like the big mouth or the whistleblower or the behind the scenes about pop culture and celebrity is- you know, when you grew up in that Catholic family of don't say anything, Lies. and even if you see proof of it, you better deny it because that's how we roll. That's really what made me um, the mouth in the alcoholic family. Well, was, how did you end up not being alcoholic? Did you go the other way? Are you I've con- never had a drink in my life. Are you control freaky? Yeah. Oh, so you went that way. Yeah. Trying to manage. Never had a drink in my life. Are, you, are your parents, were they actually Irish? Are they? Did they? 100%. Really? With, yeah. with accents and everything? No, they actually, my mama's the youngest of 16. Oh my God. How is that even possible? Take it in. Because imagine her mom. Every year? If, every nine months, probably. Because oh. that was birth control. Birth control is for the devil, remember? Right. No, I understand it, but that that, that sounds ambitious. 16. I don't think there was a lot of thought put into it. No, I, I know that, but I've never heard of a family so they of 16 came, Do you know kids. steerages? Ste- yeah, steers yeah underneath. Yeah, sure. So they came over steerage, and then um, all sixteen of them. No, how actually, many fucking cousins do you have? Uh, innumerable. <laughs> um, and you... it's funny because some of them I get along with really well, and then some of them I don't know if you found this like in your family, but when I grew up, the times were so much more liberal that I have cousins where when we were little girls, yeah, we were talking about the National Organization of Women, and we thought Gloria Steinem was like the coolest chick ever. Yeah, we grew up in and the seventies, and that same cousin, yeah. is now like going on the Glenn Beck Israel tour. And is like super, super religious. How is it, how are you going to find that? How do you know when someone's going to you know snap back? Do you know what I mean? In it's which hard. way? Well, I mean, you know, you, you grow up in the seventies, and I think a lot of times when there's no boundaries or there people have a difficult time, yeah, uh, you know, sort of processing everything, they snap back, they close up, and they look for something that can you know that that is narrow and has order, and usually it's wrong. The reason I'm looking at you quizzically is because it, it, I, that almost didn't exist or rather the process of seeing them snap back didn't exist and so i really felt it was it was i don't want to say incumbent upon me but i felt like i did not have a choice as to be that sort of alien the movie alien right trying to relate to the heteros sure um bursting out of me with if nothing else honesty and i think many of the reasons i bombed for like a good I'm going to go with five years solid is because I just sort of stood there saying sort of things that were honest and hoping some of them were funny. Well, I think that one of the, I think that the, the one thing that you might've lacked was a certain, uh, you know, stand up stagecraft, like the audience, oh, I is, had none. but the audience was different. See, like now you find your own audience and they, they're completely capable of listening, but I do not think that audiences who were expecting a stand up show had anywhere to place you in their mind. Well, they, you have to know that I, to this day, I really get the ass crack sweat thinking about doing a seven minute set or a 10 minute set. It's impossible for long form people to do that. Oh, it's hard for me to do it. But do you remember the days? And I don't know if you, you might have been too cool for this, but like, do you remember the expressions of like trying to get together your Star Search 3? 
I don't. I never tried to do star search. Okay, so in our crowd, whether yeah. you like it or not, yeah. there were several people that either were on star search or trying to get on star search, and I couldn't believe. I was. I will say I was dazzled by the ability of any comic to do, and I, I think Todd Glass may have been one of them, by the yeah. way, and many, many funny comedians that could do a set in three it's minutes. It's impossible. Well, now Letterman's, uh, he's still four and a half minutes. I mean, Tonight Show then there was That's right. There, there was the Tonight Show six. Yeah. Then there was, I think it would jump to like the College 50. Well, yeah, I had to do an hour, yes. Now, did you used to go to that college convention? No, NACA. I was- You, um, what? That's like made for you. No. Back then, I was an angry, insecure guy. I didn't, I was not, I was not operating- Like every college kid, you mean? Well, right. But I was not operating at the same level of the same popularity as as even David Tell or Louie or any of those guys. Really? Yeah. No, no, no. I was sort of an outsider. Because I could never get invited to NACA, but like, I remember Garofalo would go and she would sort of brag about bombing. And yet it led to, I think, lucrative gigs for a lot of our friends. Oh, yeah. The guys who could do it. Yeah, I mean, it's right. a, you know, you're usually playing for freshmen. It's usually st- student activities money. I was not, I never did that well. Okay, the, I would think you would do very well. N- now, college, maybe. R- now, right? Now, as, okay. a, as a okay. professor, as a visiting okay, professor. Okay, so do you feel like, because I, I just did a college last weekend. Do you feel like when you and- How'd you draw? I drew okay, but I will say the audience was shockingly good, and I did the basketball court. So, you know, sometimes you do a college and you do wow. the, like, performing art. Like, I did a, I did a show at Harvard sure. that was like a dream. Yeah. And then sometimes you're back in the basketball court, baby, and they were so nice. Yeah. But I would think you do very well at colleges. I haven't I haven't tried. I will try. They're fun. I know. it's Yeah, it's time. It's time. I can go as, a, as me you now. You go as a celebrity, uh, m- and then yeah, they my... buy tickets to see only you. Yeah, no, I, no, I, I have the, I'm going doing, to see a show. Right. I'm doing okay with a draw in some places. No, you're doing and great. I, and I think that'll be good. But I'm curious now. All right, so you have five. Your four siblings. You want to just talk ticket sales? No, no, I'm not going to. Four wall with you. No, up the ass, I, I, honey. you're I'll a rock wall, star. I'll four wall. You, whatever you want to talk about. You, you are, uh, you are an empire. I've gone from the guarantee to the back end. <laughs> I've gone to with counting with like Joey Left Eye in the back until uh-huh. the show's over. Yeah, sure. So, all right, but I'm, I'm more curious about what made you who you are. Okay. So you have four siblings. Yes, youngest you, of four. Are they around? No, my eldest brother Kenny. Um, he was a crack addict and homeless. For how long? I mean, how, a long time. And what's odd? How much older is he than you? Well, here's what's here's what's so delicious and twisted about my family. My beloved mother, who's yeah. going to be 94 June 10th, and does enjoy a box of wine, mm-hmm. and yet is highly functional. Yeah. In fact, is shockingly sharp as a tack. Okay. So my joke is, I'm like hoping she gets dementia. Yeah. So um, she's so she just remembers everything and still like gives me shit about the same stuff. But anyway, she lives nearby and then she stays with me sometimes. My father passed away seven years ago. He was here's what's tricky. I don't know if you have this in your family. I didn't realize till my father passed away that my mom was always like the potential right wing nut job, and my dad luckily was lefty and kept the balance. Right. So now I've kind of like. I don't want to say lost my mom to Bill O'Reilly and Hannity and those nut jobs, but our arguments are getting more heated than I would like. Well, O'Reilly kind of plays a Catholic card too a little yes, bit. Yes, yeah. exactly. So he taps in, yeah. He taps into Maggie Griffin in uh-huh. a big way. And um, of the siblings, um, what was interesting about my brother Kenny was that while he was never convicted of being a pedophile, he also didn't deny it. So I grew up with that kind of energy and that kind of Catholic stuff happening in the secrecy was he, around it. Well, do you think he was abused? Yes. He uh, he allegedly told my parents, not in front of me, that it was in fact like a coach that had abused him. And I'm assuming, I'm, I'm going to go with Priest uh-huh. while we're at it. Uh-huh. Um, and I have another brother. But did he abuse you? 
No, but he had a friend who did not. I, you know, this is very odd in this sort of world that we're talking about. I want to be sensitive. Uh, abused, but not. Oh, this is going to sound so weird. I'm not. I'm so afraid to like downplay anything, but not penetration. Right. But still abuse. Right. It was not good. Mm-hmm. Okay. So anyway, um, my my theory is that because this guy was my brother's bestie, mm-hmm. I have often had a lot of fear and guilt about, is this something that they were doing together for fun? Because right. my guess is dudes like this find each other. Right. Um, and also in my brother Ken's case, who's no longer with us, his ex-wife and then separately his ex-girlfriend told me personally that he was doing this. And when my father finally said to him later in life, yeah. Kathleen is estranged from you because she believes you're a pedophile. Is uh-huh. that true? And my brother Ken said to my father, I do what I do. That's what he said. Okay. So to this day, my beloved mother is like, well, that's not an admission. Let me tell you something. Do you have sex with kids? No. Okay. <laughs> so your answer isn't I do what I do. Okay? Yeah. If you asked me, I would not say did, I do what I do. I your, would say nope, I sure don't. Yeah, no way. And I can probably prove it. Right. You know. Did your parents either of them sober up? Well, I will say that here's what's interesting. They were always highly, highly functional. They never got into a car accident. No violence in the house? No violence in the house, except for my brother. The brother who passed away was violent toward his his wife um, in front of me. But he Very seemed traumatic. to like he 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 got the disease. He, he was got off the, the rails. Alcoholic he was off the rails and, yeah, always. Uh, always, yeah. Um, but no, what's interesting about my mom and dad and um, so a couple of my siblings is never got DUIs. But I could like make a Tom Collins when I was eight. Right. So if you think that's normal <laughs> to have mommy and daddy say, well, you're the one who was, who was in control of everything. Well, we had the paper like sure, the packets. Sure, the Tom Collins. But you yeah, know, yeah, I, yeah, I, sure. I mean, I, did you grow up on like space food sticks and tang? Uh, not really. I'm, I grew up a Jew, so there was more um, with re- real food. Yeah, some. Well, not really real food, but more diety food. I think I grew okay. up with. Because my mother, um, I'm just going to tell you something, and, and you can judge as you will, but I'm, I'm going to just tell you what I, my I'm said. on board with you. I, I'm, I'm just going to be honest because, yeah, all right. We're doing honest. A, a she's 94, so I'm going to give you a little bit of the she's codependent. Not hear this. No, what I mean is I, I'm afraid you're, I'm sort of afraid you're going to turn on her, but I'm just going to tell you I'm this. I'm not going to. Okay. It, it, and like I said, I'm making excuses because of her age, but it's inappropriate. So I moved her into this gorgeous retirement village that mm-hmm. has everything. It's like the Four Seasons. It's mm-hmm. beautiful. Her one um, complaint about it is that it is, these are her words, too Jewy. Yeah. No, I, well, well I, I can understand that. But uh, do you want, can I tell you why she feels it's, quote, too Jewy? They talk too much around her? No. What? They're way more concerned with the food than the booze. <laughs> Don't laugh at that. Don't support that. Please. Please. You should be condemning her and saying that that's horrible. So when I, because when she said that to me, I was really, that really caught me off guard because I've never heard. It doesn't surprise me. No, but I've never heard anything anti-Semitic from her in 94 years. And I I finally was determined to get to the bottom of what what is too Jewy in your mind. And then when she said, you know, there's like a cafeteria at the retirement yeah, village. Right. She said, how many times when I'm trying to have a glass of goddamn wine can those people return a tuna melt? <laughs> she, just, she just wants to be left alone to drink. Yes. So <laughs> so my question for you is, is she an anti-Semite or not? No, I think she's seeing Jews in their rawest and most irritating form. <laughs> I think... <laughs> After a certain age, it's, it's just about food and poop, and it can't be uh, 
<laughs> it can't be a party for anybody. Well, don't I mean, get me started on the shits. Yeah. Because that is her main topic. Sure, sure. But her is booze get... and shits. That's a different Well, she's between... so, she doesn't understand why an entire tribe would choose food when there's wine <laughs> the, and- The different priorities. There's a Manhattan to be made. Well, I think, there's I, an old fashioned to be made. Well, there's, the, the, I don't think, I think the Jews by nature eat their feelings away and the Catholics by nature drink their feelings Hello, away. Hello, speak English, please. Sure. That does not compute with <laughs> the, Maggie Griffin. No, no, no. One iota. Food doesn't do food is not capable of suppressing but the you're secrets okay your with her in. using those people no i'm not okay with it but those i mean people after would a rather point, have a nice sandwich what do you want me to say your your mother's a horrible jew hating old catholic lady well i can't say it no <laughs> i'll say it for you from my point of view your mother's a horrible jew hater Oh my god! The I, bad thing is, my siblings will listen to this. So no, my mom won't, but my siblings will. No, I mean, you know, people. But it's sort of you gotta laugh. People of certain dispositions, uh, you know, who have a legacy or an honor, who honor their past, and and they they come from a weird place. Jewish bigots are no better. What is your cutoff age? For what? You know what? Like, at what age will you kind of let a comment like that slide? It's at the age where you know the argument is not going to change anything. You're not going to shed new light. So would you, okay, 45 or 50, would you be like, dude, you know what, that's it's not cool. It's that's a little cool. inappropriate. And then, like, is there a specific cutoff point where you go, you know what, I'm just going to let this one pass? Well, sometimes it just depends. Do you want to invest the energy in, and how horrible is the comment? And sometimes you feel guilty investing the energy well, yeah, sometimes someone it, at a certain age where you think, well, what, well they could die Well, tomorrow. the ones that I don't like are the ones that test you. Like, they they say something, they're like, eh, you're going to let me. Oh, you know, that's like, all old people. That's every person at my mom's retirement Some people village. are just shameless about they it. They love and, you know, to push the button. That's their way yeah. of, like, feeling young again and right. stuff. I, yeah, my, like, my mom's a big button pusher. That's why I joke that, you know, the dementia's got to hit eventually because Maybe she can get the jabs not, in 94 it hasn't happened it's, it's not her idea happen. of a good time where, where are the rest of your siblings are they all okay uh my brother just passed away a couple of months ago from a very very nasty battle with esophageal cancer oh my god and i will tell you this if i can get serious for one second one thing i was i was in the room with him the whole really? the whole nine yeah you were that close well the palliative care people are amazing and they actually come out and go do you want to be in the room? And if so, this is probably so you, how it's going to Your go family down. was there. Everybody was there. It was really cool. My my brother and sister were there, and they both said, we'll be in the room. And then I said, hey, just so you know, like, no judgment. Whoever wants to be in the room, we can never bring this up later right. at a drunken family Christmas. Like, why weren't you in the room? Right. And right. so my mom said, I can't. I can't handle it. And then she did something very sweet. She asked um, if my boyfriend would sit with her. Uh-huh. And um, the comedy, because you got to find the comedy and everything. Sure. Is that my boyfriend had about five hours earlier had um, his first colonoscopy? <laughs> I just did that. But you're supposed to take the day off when you have a colonoscopy. Yeah, yeah, you should. No, he was he was actually <laughs> up and running with the Griffins, yeah. the crazy Griffins. I think the two days before is when you should probably stay close to home. Yeah, that's not fun. <laughs> that's not fun. But I'm just saying, a colonoscopy is no joke with the no, with the uh, and no, you know you know the hospital call they call the propofol Michael's milk. Uh huh. That's like hospital humor. What did, what does that mean? It means that's how Michael Jackson died from a oh, propofol right, right, overdose. Right, right. So the nurses love to be like, you want some Michael's milk? Uh-huh. You don't even feel that. I went right out. I don't think I got that. Did it even make you try to count back? They made me try to count back for three, like three seconds. And then I was, I was going to say, because when they say from 100, I always feel like saying, you know, you can start at three. Yeah, just you do don't three. need to say count I don't back even, for 100 anymore. I don't even remember. I just remember talking to the doctor and I didn't even see the anesthesiologist. I think he just started like Very the doctor stealth. said, yeah, turn on your side. Did and you express the, fear? Like, did you say like, I'm an anxious person? No, I, I didn't. I didn't. I was pretty in. I was a little weird. The facility was a little odd to me. 
because it wasn't a was hospital. It, it's just a room. Well, it's it's not even a. It's like a. It's like an operating facility. I didn't realize they had those. Where you know that's all they do there is doctors kind of rent the place. Oh, for the I know day. that from plastic surgery. Right. So that's one of those so when I had my facelift in two thousand one, I was yeah. like, this is somebody's office. Yeah. And then the scam is then. Well, this is plastic surgery, which I know you're very into. Obviously, you clearly have had a ton of work done. I have it in my family. I, I am not. Uh, I am <laughs> no. Not but what's prepared. the scam with plastic surgery is that if you go in for a facelift, number one, they do it in an office, not on like this, and number two, they have the nerve to charge you rent. Right. That, so that's it's their they, own right. office, and then they go, okay, so the facelift is whatever it is, and then there's the um, facility rental fee. And yeah, I'm like, I had dude, to pay that too. That's your office. Is it their office? Though, yes, or is it, it's a scam. Well, that's a bit of a racket. Well, this right, was so plastic surgery. Let's go back because I have a specific right. thing I want to know. Okay. So you leave your your massive Irish family. Yeah. You turn your back on God. At what point? I turned my back on God in junior high. I came home and announced when I went to St. Bernardine's that I wanted to become a Unitarian because I had heard that they were, you know, not as strict, et cetera. And then my father, this is sort of funny. My father threatened to disown me in, I think, seventh grade. And I was like, "Where really? Where am I going to go? Like, what does that really mean? You're going to, and you know, I was trying to be existential. Yeah. And then um, he did scare me, I think, into going to mass a couple more times. But but you went to confession and everything. Oh, I did the confession. I just want to say, in defense of Unitarianism, the Unitarian Church in my town of Oak Park was built by Frank Lloyd Wright. Pretty. So I just want to yeah. say, I'm not a religious person, but if you're going to go to one service, <laughs> yeah. go to Oak Park, Illinois, and go to the Frank Lloyd Wright Unitarian Church, because yeah. it's beautiful. How did this? How did the whole Catholicism thing fuck your head about sex in general? Well, first of all, you know, um, I, 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 for whatever reason, at a very early age, just like my act, I the one thing I can't stand is not talking about things. Right. And so, you know, I remember um, I had a very um, progressive, do you know what a lay teacher is? A lay teacher? Yeah, in, yeah, the, Catholic, yeah. in the Catholic Church, you're not, either Not ta- of the cloth. Correct. Yes. Correct. So when I was, uh, I actually just had um, dinner with my third grade science teacher after a gig I did over the weekend, Mr. Major. Mm-hmm. And he was a lay teacher, which was like very edgy, right? Right. When the, one of our modern-esque lay teachers, mm-hmm. very living on the edge, and I'm sure without any approval from the nuns or the priests, gave us a simple worksheet that you should give to anyone, certainly in junior high, which would be seventh or eighth grade. And it was a worksheet that you do with your mom and dad. Yeah. And it was basically birds and bees. Right. So I was very excited to like have an actual conversation. I knew not to go to my dad. I was right. like, forget. He's working 12 hours a day at the Hi-Fi store. That's what he did? Hi-Fi. Yeah. Sold stereos? Yeah. Oh, that's nice. I wanted to test you because I wanted to see if I hear one person say what's Hi-Fi, I'm going to smack him. No, I, I I always went to Hi-Fi stores. Thank you. Do you have his own Hi-Fi store? Okay. This is the one area that we were cool. So total middle class all the way, total depression parents. Yeah. Because my dad worked at a Hi-Fi store, each one of us five kids had our own stereo. Nice. That's pretty cool. And you had older sibs, so you had a lot of music coming at you. I was all about their older yeah. music. So yeah. I was all about getting, you know. It sounded like you had every decade represented. Because well, what was the difference between you and your brother age-wise? Uh, 20 years. Oh, so yeah. So that's the thing is I actually did grow up on really good um, music. Okay. So it was all like, you know, Beatles and Bonnie Raitt yeah. and all that stuff. Um, so anyway, there was a worksheet where I was supposed to have an open conversation with my mother. Mm-hmm. And if, I mean, 
mean, it was from a Catholic school, so right. it didn't have like bad words. Yeah. And I remember my mom was on the phone with my Aunt Irene, and it was like the long cord phone, yeah. and she was sitting on a stool in the kitchen. And I just, when my mom talked to my sister, it was kind of sacred. Yeah. So I was even afraid to tap her shoulder. And she was in the moo-moo, the whole thing. And I said, Mom, this is part of an assignment. I have to ask you these questions. She looked at the paper from St. Bernardine's and went, Jesus Christ! <laughs> I'm not talking to you about this. You know what? And I said, but mom, we're supposed to talk about something called contraception. Yeah, and yeah. my mom said the word no. <laughs> now I'm talking to your aunt. And that was my birds and bees talk. The word no, I'm talking to your aunt. Well, th- were you afraid of hell? Yes. And that was like, an, like th- even in third grade, I had the hand up and I was like, Sister Mary Betrayal. Okay, that's the flying yeah. nun. But Sister Mary, whatever. Yeah. You know, I would say, these seem like kind of minor infractions. Yeah. Like, let's, I, I get the hell, you know, killing someone, mm-hmm. but really using the Lord's name in vain. Have you been to my house? Yeah, right. It's, everybody's going. So it seemed unreasonable. Well, and also- it seemed like a racket. Not only that, also, concurrently, while I was hearing that from the nuns at school, the minute I went home, I would hear a litany of reasons I was going to hell in a handbasket. Sure. And that seems small. Okay, but I don't know what a handbasket is. <laughs> anyway, so I see you can't fit in it. Okay, thank you. <laughs> so I didn't know how seriously I was right. to take the nuns yeah. when I would go home and yeah. my mother would say, you're going to hell in a handbasket. So you eventually thought it was a scam. Very early on. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and say maybe even first grade. Yeah, like okay. early on, I was going, this, is, this sounds like bullshit. Right. So now the decision to, well, when did you end up losing your virginity? Oh, that's the part I'm the most proud of. Um, 19. Oh, good. Yeah. You waited. You're not shocked by that? No. How, what about you? 17. Nice job. Because <laughs> everybody else who says 13, like it's nothing. I, I can't even imagine. I got a lot of sex. anxiety about it. No, I, I. Not, not even God related. I, just generally. I, I saw porn too but, young and it really fucked my head up. Okay. So I never saw porn, but up until 17. Yeah. Did, did the idea of sex actually turn you on or yeah, was oh, absolutely, it weird? Absolutely. But I just, the idea of like, you know, getting from it turning me on to doing, doing it, it yeah. was a big leap. See, when, for me, like really up until, like I said, 18 or 19 when I finally did it, the, just the idea of it sounded potentially painful bizarre on for like i still i honestly i know as a dude you're gonna laugh at this it took me a while to go i'm not sure what the girl gets out of it yeah because growing up without ever even i don't know early on i don't know if they get much out of it i never masturbated until after i started having sex what what were you doing not masturbating so when it came to should you have sex at 14 15 16 17 why didn't you masturbate i didn't even know what it was it didn't even occur to me i thought it was something boys did really really so there was no porn in my house, zero. But before, but there were brothers, and there was a, uh, there was you know some I, sexual I never, deviancy. Correct, correct. But I, I never walked in on any of my brothers masturbating. Huh. I certainly, you know, I never walked in on mom and dad having sex. So I don't have that story. But did um, you do any? You, did you do everything think, else before you lost your virginity? I mean, were you doing other things? I don't think I. I don't think. Okay, here's what I can. I swear to God, I did not talk to one of my grade school or high school girlfriends about masturbating my hand to god i did not like even say like have you guys tried masturbating it was it took a my first boyfriend was like what do you mean you've never masturbated yeah and then i said well i mean i i guess i should i wouldn't even really know how this is when you were 19 yeah when i was 19 and so my first the first guy that i had sex with kind of like walked me through it and showed me 
And then, of course, I was like, oh, this is great. But I, I don't need you anymore. This guy was very... He was, <laughs> Thank you. Goodbye. He was actually very... He was. I felt bad for this guy. Like, I yeah. was such a horrible first lay for this guy. Yeah. Like, this guy had sort of... He knew what he was doing. Yeah. And he's, like, patiently going, well, here's how you masturbate, and uh, here's how you fuck. And yeah. I was like, really? You know, yeah. I mean, I was really... Was it bad? I mean, by the way, I never talk to women about this. You're the first woman I've ever really talked to about Honest? this. Honest? On the era. It's not really what I do. No, no, I know, I know. I actually, have been to- I actually have been told that this is like not the area you like to go in. Um, is that true? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Someone's been listening and advising I've had, you? On- I've had several people be like, he doesn't want to go here. He wants to go here. All right. So when did you, so you come out here, how old are you when you start, you want to be an actress? Um, I convinced my parents because, okay, first of all, this is really cliche, but my mom and dad des- decided to retire in California from Chicago because of the crappy winters. That's not the cliche, but because my dad was such a golf fanatic. Right. It was going to be somewhere where he could golf year-round. So they wanted to go to San Diego because they had visited there once. And then I talked them into Los Angeles because I was so determined to be an actress of some kind that I knew I couldn't do it in San Diego. And so I had to look up golf courses. And when I say look up, it was like magazines, right? right? And be like, oh, are you kidding? The golf courses in near Fox Studios are great and near Warner Brothers. They're the best golf courses. And you sold him on that? Yeah, sold him. And we lived in the grossest apartment, sorry, but um, Pico and Lincoln. How many kids were left in the house at that point? At that point, it was just me. I mean, first of all, I, I was living with my parents until I was 28. Mm. So take that in. <laughs> well, but don't worry, because it got really normal when I moved in with the next door neighbor, John. Mm-hmm. And then I was living with him three feet away from my mom and dad's apartment. So when you- In a romantic little, relationship? Uh, at Pico and Lincoln. You, you romantic, met your neighbor? Yes. yes. And that's who you decided I to be with. I moved next door. But what I mean is, you know, mom and dad would open the front door and there was John, my boyfriend, uh-huh. three feet away. Uh-huh. Did that, that did that for five years off and on. Come on. Mm, sorry. What is that about? It's true. What were you afraid It's of? about mental illness. I don't know what, what it's about. It's about I mean not mental it's about something was wrong with me that I would think well, what, what I'm gonna segue it, to the boyfriend. What do you think it was? What were you afraid of? Why didn't well, you Well, first leave? of all, I think I liked him. But I don't think it occurred to me if I liked him to go, you know, John, you and I should probably get a place it, further away, even down the block. I Where mean, they can anything. hear us through the walls. They can't. <laughs> <laughs> so were you that attached to your parents? Is that the last kid syndrome? Or I just- will. It's the last kid syndrome. And also my parents did this thing that was really fucked up where they they really worked hard to indoctrinate, indoctrinate me and convince me that there was no way I could financially support myself. And it's one of the reasons I am so money obsessed to this day is because my mom saw the infamous like 60 minutes about the lady who lost everything and had to eat in her car and live in her car and eat dog food. And so to this day, you could probably call my mother and she would say, if Kathleen doesn't stop spending... She's going to eat dog food. Right. But just so you know, I'm not a crazy spender. Like, I own my house outright. I own my car outright. I'm not walking around with an Hermes bag. But to this day, I still kind of what have kind that What kind of bag voice. do you have? All right, I have a Gucci bag. <laughs> but I, it's 10 years old. But anyway, I'm just saying, you know, I really, I really believed at that time that while I was temping full time and being in the Groundlings, I couldn't even afford an apartment. And so when I finally got my first studio apartment on Sentinella for $329 a month, I lived there for six years. Yeah, very frugal and frayed. I just thought, oh my gosh, $329 a month and I'm working full time and I'm in the groundlings. How am I ever going to pay my rent? And so I was determined to never um, acquire any debt 
which I never did. I borrowed once in my life. I borrowed $500 from a groundling friend, lived in a panic until I paid him back like three weeks later. And that was it. Who were now when you started the groundlings, what, what, uh, who was in the crew? Okay. This is, this is impressive. So get ready. What year is this? This is, I'm going to say 78, 79. Okay. Okay. So I'm from Chicago. So I grew up worshiping second city, but you never went over there. No, I went there constantly, but I was too young to be in the school. But so you, oh, so I, you actually went and watched? All the time. Who were the people there then? Oh, my gosh. It was uh, Tim Kaczynski. 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 Yeah. It was um, uh, Mary Gross. It was, you know, I'm probably some of the greats because my parents would take me there when I was a kid. So it was I, a regular thing. So you were it was it part was, of your life, second city. First of all, that's one of the great things. One of the frustrating things yeah. about Los Angeles is, you know, it's the only major city I know of where people don't regularly go to live entertainment, right. theater of any kind. And so- They were we, a little jaded here. Yeah, very, yeah. It, to me, it's the hardest place it's to sell hard, tickets yeah, in ticket. the world. Yeah, because they can see the it for nothing if they really or want to. Or they can go to a taping of a television show sure. and see a celebrity or whatever. So anyway, we regularly went to Second City and we regularly went to see, you know, folk acts. Like I used to go see John Prine on Sundays, and he would actually perform at a club, but at a brunch. With your parents? Yeah. So they were fans. They were very good about that. They were very good about like getting us out to like live entertainment and and the arts and that sort of thing. So you knew the comedic performing was something you were especially Second City. Yeah. So of course I worshipped comedy, and I I can't believe I gave this up, but I used to have the playbill of the night that my mom and dad went to the Drury Lane Theater, which I believe was in the round, and they went to see Woody Allen open for Jim Croce. Really? How cool is that? Like how that must have been in like just like he did stand up for like uh, yeah. what sixty nine to seventy two. He opened for Jim Croce. Wow, that must have been like in the sixties. And my yeah. mom and dad, of course, went to see Woody Allen more, but they also thought Jim Croce was a good singer. He was good. So they had this kind of dichotomy where they were like these crazy Catholics, and then they would go see Woody Allen and Jim Croce. Okay, so Second City was my influence, and so I moved to Los Angeles, opened up the LA Weekly, which I lived by, and there was a bad review of the Groundlings, but it said it's similar in tone to Second City. So I went by myself. I took the number four bus. I went by myself. Honestly, maybe my second week in Los Angeles was living in the apartment with my parents on Pico. Late 70s? 79. I'm I'm going to say 80, 80, maybe 80. So it was before it really blew up. Yeah. Oh, way before. At that time, the most famous groundlings were three. It was Lorraine Newman, my idol. It was Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, who was a very big local celebrity, obviously. And Pee Wee Herman had just um, mounted his show at the um, Roxy. Okay. Yet to be an HBO special. Right. So that's all I needed. So I went to the show by myself. I thought it was dazzling. I thought it was amazing. And I just wanted to do it so badly that I snuck backstage I walked, and when I say backstage at the Groundlings, it's not exactly the Sydney Opera right. House, but yeah, I'm just yeah. saying yeah. It's, it then became my home later. But anyway, I walked backstage, bold as brass, by yeah. myself, and I just went up to who I thought was the funniest person in the show. So I went to the back backstage, and there was a guy standing there, and I just walked in, and he kind of looked surprised, and I said, I'm sorry to bother you, but I saw that um, I saw the show, and I just thought, you guys were so incredible. How can I get involved in this? And he was so nice and so patient, and he said, well, there's a school, and there's a guy who runs the school and I can introduce you to him and there's a whole set of classes you have right. to go through yeah. and he was very patient he spent a good 10 minutes with me he directed me to the guy who ran the school and that man's name was Phil Hartman oh really how about that 
So he probably wasn't there that long at that point either. What was so awesome was he then, of course, left. Yeah. Um, but he was a great mentor to me because prior to SNL, people don't know that Phil did every failed pilot in the world. And he really taught me that world of, and you and I know this world very well, when any one of our friends would get a pilot, we'd be like, oh, they're going to be big stars. Right. And then when the pilot doesn't go or the show gets canceled, and Phil Hartman was that guy. He was just constantly getting, he was on the precipice forever. Yeah. And. And he would leave the groundlings. Nice and guy too, right? Incredibly yeah, nice. I met and him once. Like kind of a legit genius. Yeah. You know, people throw that word around, but really dazzling on stage. He's a good uh, artist too. A good he did, artist. He did and, um, album covers. Well, the thing that I loved about him was he told me later that the way he ingratiated himself in the groundlings, and I'm very big on ingratiation, is that he started, um, he went to the head of the school and said, yeah. can I do the graphics for, if I do the graphics for free, will you let me join the company? And that's how we got in the Groundlings. Do they so st- would, I wonder if those graphics still exist. Do they? They're somewhere. I'm yeah. sure the Groundlings have them somewhere, but I remember seeing them in album covers. And yeah, he was a, a great artist. And he would be going to art shows when mm-hmm. he wasn't performing. Mm-hmm. And that was certainly beyond my scope. Um, but anyway, he then, of course, went to um, do pilots. But prior to SNL, he had one more run back at the Groundlings when I was finally in the Groundlings. You auditioned I, for the classes and then you got in. Right. You and went so through I the actually four had years, one six, it? The, Oh, it was like three or four years. Yeah. But I had one like six month period where Phil and I were actually in four shows a week together. Wow. And that was magical because yeah. he, he really was incredible. That, and and so that was once you got into the company. Who else yeah. was there? My posse, it, you know, I was there for so long. It took me... It took me so long to to like get out of there, and I say that with all love and respect, because all my friends passed me by, and it was really hard. I mean, everybody, you know, John Lovitz was there for like six months and then got plucked for SNL, and you know, Lisa Kudrow and Julia Sweeney and I auditioned for Lauren Michaels on the same night, and then Julia got picked, and then she was off to SNL land, and you know, a lot everybody I started out with just was. Getting jobs you were and getting working. jobs. Were no. You, you weren't at all. I was temping, honey. I was a Kelly girl. Wait, wait, were you bitter? Yes. And angry. It was hard. I mean, I loved these people, and then I just watched them all go on to bigger and Did better things. Did you start things. to see yourself as somebody who was never going to be anything but a hobbyist? Never. I never, and that's what infuriated my parents is I never had the plan B. I never went, I was supposed to be um, a stew or a yeah. dental hygienist. Right. And you never thought that. Well, first of all, you're not supposed to say stew anymore. So let me stop I'm, you there. I'm okay. I'm okay. Right. I, 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 so I, no, I didn't do that much to their chagrin. But, and my parents actually paid for my grounding classes, which were like 385 bucks a pop. But you were getting angry. Yes. And brokenhearted. Brokenhearted. I mean, first of all, Lorne Michaels in those days only came to the Groundlings like every three years. So the night that he came, yeah. and then you know he chose he chose Julia Sweeney over Lisa Kudrow and myself, and then there were other girls backstage that were furious that the three of us were even in the running. So you're backstage with your friends, and they're hating that you're in the running, and then you know I didn't even get the job, so I'm like, okay, you can all go back to liking me for five seconds, because guess what? I'm a failure again. Are we cool? Yeah. And it was always that, like, I was pulling for the other Groundling people, but it definitely hurt when they went on to, like, the great jobs. Well, Sitcom you... or SNL, whatever. But you did a lot of TV work, I mean, before... I it mean, was what... slow and steady. I mean, remember, my students were getting on SNL, so then... You were teaching at the Groundling? That was my full time job and it's how i actually got after my scratchy you, voice is i would teach five you, days a week all right so you quit temping and i quit you took, temping you took a gig as a teacher at the groundlings yes and i would do five oh, classes a week for a hundred dollars a class you must have been out of your mind i was out of my mind and well, then i would be doing the shows on friday and saturday so i'd be just doing, to see all these young people come in and, yeah. and treat you like that 
Like, you well, don't want to end up like her. Sure. Well, no, no. Actually, it was the opposite. Uh-huh. It was like, you know, Sherry O'Terrian, Will Ferrell, and Chris Parnell. You taught Parnell, them? And they were like, oh my gosh, you're so great. You're my teacher. You're you so- taught Will Ferrell? Yes. They were your students? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, the list goes on. The uh-huh. list goes on. How about when I was a teacher and then later on I would audition for one of them because one of them would be the showrunner for Friends. Oh, my God. But they were all very nice. I mean, it, re- it really wasn't like, I don't want to be like the sad lady. It was more like watching them go from, oh, wow, you're my teacher. You're so funny. You're so great. I hope I get moved on to the next level to like, maybe they don't say hi to me on the red carpet. Right. You know, when you when you lose a friend to, I call it the stratosphere. Mm-hmm. It's it's like, no, I don't know. I know uh, I've, I've had that business, happen. Yeah. yeah. So there are friends that are kind of like at your level, and then there are friends that are doing a little well, better, you, and then there are friends that are so famous that they can't return your call well, what for do you make two of that? years. What do you make of that psychologically? What do you, you know, because it, 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 Being empathetic, what do you make of that? Being empathetic, I, I actually really get it 90% of the time. In other words, the older I've gotten and the more people I've seen come and go up and down, yeah. the more I go, you know what? I actually get that in that maelstrom you you didn't have time to call me. Yeah, it's busy. It's busy, and it's something I, I can't understand, and I've never had that level of Lisa Kudrow at the height of Friends, Will right. Ferrell where he is now, et cetera. Um, on the other hand, I also have now, as you, have now come to know so many people that are so well-known that now I don't, I don't like, cut them all slack. Right. Like, I don't, I don't give them all the fame pass. Right. I give a lot of people the fame pass, and I don't know about you, but I definitely give them the pass for, like, the first couple years. Well, it's weird because you don't really know where you stand in their lives legitimately. You know, you had this time with them together, and you were struggling and this and that, but what's the friendship really built on? Because a lot of times when I think they enter that stratosphere, they end up with two people they can rely on. Sometimes they're old, old friends. Yeah. And sometimes... Sometimes, you know, they just, they don't want to be out in, in the world. They don't trust anybody yeah. anymore. Yeah. And also, as you know, sometimes the two friends they're with are, you know, the, um, of course, Dane Cook had the situation with his brother, which I think had to be devastating to him. Or, you know, for me, I mean, I admit it, there's a there's a long time where I was on the road so much and filming my life on the D-list and doing specials. I've done 20 specials that I hung out with my assistant, Tiffany, more than anybody in my life. Because you don't have any time when you're self-employed and you and you have that momentum going, where the, where the, you don't even have fucking time to meet someone well, for coffee. Well, you're also going city after city. Yeah. And, and, when, and the, if there's a day where you're not in an airport, the last thing you want to do is like go to a bar and meet friends. Well, see, what's fascinating to me about you and after like, you know, doing the, the minor amount of research that I do is that I don't know that I gave you credit for the amazing sort of uh, persistence and accomplishment that you have. And have had done. Well, I appreciate that very much because... Because you're off my radar a bit. <laughs> I know. But you're definitely on other people's radar. You know, there's a lot of different radars now. That's... And we all end up going different directions. Well, that's what we struggle with. But I mean, it, it, to me, when I first met you, and, and I remember when you did the bit part in Pulp Fiction and you were still running around being an actress, I mean, you did a lot of bit spots on TV shows, is that at what point... Like, okay, so you're doing all comedy, you're bombing on stage, yeah. and you're, you've decided to tell stories, you're doing Beth Lapidus's room, you're, right. you're trying different things. Hot cup things. of talk. Right. So, but you're trying everything. Yeah. You're doing everything Open you can. Open mic nights, anything. Right. Coffee so, houses, and, and, bookstores. And my recollection of you being angry is probably true. I mean, I, yeah. I picked that up. Of course. So some, some, some part of your will you know, pushed you into this area where you, you sort of reinvented yourself, but I think you actually invented yourself. As Kathy Griffin, 
what we see now. Yes. And that all happened because of what? Well, I'm just going to say it was 100% me, and I'll tell you why. Because I... You know, one issue that I have with the level of bitterness that I have is one thing I've always craved desperately is I have never in my career had producerial support, network support, or agency support. How about peer support? Uh, Sometimes. Sometimes. Because you were sort of like... Let me tell you, early on, I had it in spades. And I have to say that I haven't talked to Groffle for a long time. I I don't think she cares for me. But I will say that at that time, whether she likes it or not... The support I got from Margaret Cho, Janine Garofalo, Colin Quinn, um, Karen Kil- Kilgariff apparently doesn't like me now. But whether, whether or not that's true, it meant everything to me that the late, great Judy Toll would say to me, keep doing your thing. Don't try to be a joke teller. That's not what you do. Right. Keep honing whatever it is you do. And certainly Beth Lapidus letting me go on stage pretty much every Sunday. and She still will. And the Groundlings saying, okay, you can have the Groundling Theater one night a week. To work out your shit? Yeah, no, to do a hot cup of talk. Right. Oh, okay. Because I found this thing. Was that a pilot idea? No, there was a loophole in the Groundlings bylaws that if there was an empty night at the Groundling Theater and you were an active company member, you could have it for free. So, of course, I like read through the bylaws. I was looking for any kind of a venue because I was bombing in every club. But that was a talk show, right? No, no. It was stand-up. It was exactly like on Cabaret, and it was four comedians, and we actually okay. had a timer. Right. And it was, it was a, it, the show was a dollar because I was so convinced that no one would pay more to see me and Janine Garofalo and Margaret Cho and Chicks. You know, and so we made the show a dollar. We made the show at the max an hour. So every comedian, four comedians, you put on the timer for 15 minutes. The right. whole audience could hear it ticking. When the bell went off, you introduced the next comic and everybody was gone in an hour. The reason I did that was, it, you know, the industry showcase days. It was so hard to get industry people to come see me or the Groundlings or I was never in that crowd where like, People were lining up with deals and contracts. So I would make it so easy for people to come see us that it was a dollar. And they knew that if they came at eight, they were out the door at nine. And And so I did that for years. Really? For years? Years. I did on Cabaret and Hot Cup of Talk. But But you were still just acting. I hadn't even gotten on my first sitcom, which was 1996. So we're talking like 1993, 1994, 1995. So you're still beating your head against the wall. Yes. So now... The big break was the D-list show. The big break was really suddenly, Susan, here's why. Because I was on an NBC show, arguably a horrible show. Oh, that's right. But a life-changing and yeah. really fun show. And I really, really loved everyone on the show. And, you know, it was not a good show. But it was a great job for me. So I bought my first house. And because of being on I that show, I got my first HBO special. They took me to, a sh- I had to do a showcase at the Ice House. And I was like, the Ice House. And they said, the audiences there are notoriously nice. And they were right. So Chris Albrecht, who then ran HBO, gave me my first special. And it was an hour. My first special was the comedy special, half hours. And then I got an hour. And I um, said to him, so, you know, I'm, I'm obviously not that polished of a comedian. Why are you giving me an hour? And he said, because you're a girl and because you're on NBC Thursday night. Uh And I went, okay, good enough for me. That's right. fine with but, me. But, I have no that whatever it takes to get in the door. Thank you. But oddly, it's very weird because as a guy that came out of the club comedy scene and then you know was part of the alternative thing, yeah, is that the judgment of alternative comedy was always exactly what you were doing. Like they they don't have jokes. They they talk. They don't improvisational. You know, try right. not to do the same set twice. But the weird thing is, is that I think it seems to me that you, out of all of them, 
because even Cho and, and Garofalo were club comedians. You, you know, well, to they some had degree. the choice. Just so you know, I couldn't get booked no, at the club. I, right. Okay. So they were able to, and Dana Gould also, like he would do both worlds. Right. And, uh, but they, they came up in that. I mean, I mean, Dana yeah. definitely came up in it. But you, through persistence, you were one of the first ones to really sort of start to build a, a genuine audience. Well, I started my own show, like Mickey freaking Rooney, because while Beth Lapidus was giving me stage time, which was amazing, I went, you know, the rest of the nights of the week, these other people can go and do other venues. And then that's when Ginny Garofalo, Judy Tolo, and I got together. And then I said, I think I can get the Groundlings one night a week. And we worked on, like, I think Judy did a flyer from, you know, a, at a Kinko's. Right. And that's how we started Hot Cup of Talk. So at least it gave me two nights a week where I could do 15. So I would do on Cabaret as much as Beth and and um, Beth and her husband Greg would let me. Right. And then I could do Hot Cup of Talk where it was my show. So right. it was me and three other people. I only had to book three other people. The Groundlings was a well-known place. Yeah. And then I consciously chose people that weren't comedians to join us. Like one night, Lisa Kudrow did 15 minutes and she's never done stand-up. One night, Quentin Tarantino did 15 minutes and he's obviously never done stand-up. Are you stand-up. still friends with him? I don't see him a lot, but once again, I think of him as early on like a, ch- a champion of mine and um, someone who is like, I, there's something about this girl I like. And he, but, but ultimately, he didn't go that direction. No, I really love what I do more than anything. But I, how? But how did the how did the uh, the my life on the D list happen? Oh, because I was supposed to have a very expensive, fancy Seinfeld esque four camera sitcom, mm-hmm. and then the bottom fell out. So what happened was after um, after Hot Cup of Talk, I then got on Suddenly Susan for four years. When that ended. I was told by everybody, like, you're, you're kind of, you're going to get your own show. I had meetings with everybody. Then none of it happened. So I had a year of sleeping till one o'clock, watching Oprah. Depressed, bitter? Depressed, bitter, ice cream and Oprah. And thinking, what the fuck am I going to do? What the fuck? Everybody said I was going to be hooked up. I, my next show was just right around the corner. Nothing. Crickets. Why do you think that was? It was everything from... People thought I couldn't drive a show or be a co-star of a show. I remember one time um, in a meeting with an executive, him saying, "You know, we'd love to we'd love to pair you with somebody, another girl who's really, really funny, like a like a Carmen Electra." <laughs> now I like Carmen Electra; she's yeah. a nice girl, right? She did my talk show. Yeah, I'm just saying. When they said that, I thought they were going to say you and Jeanine Garofalo are going to have a buddy cop show or right. something. I'm sure. just saying. So I would have meetings when they would. They wanted you to be the brassy they would, sidekick. But they would say things like, we want to put you with another comedian like Lara Flynn Boyle. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and I'm sitting there going like, I love Twin Peaks. I yeah. wouldn't say Lara Flynn Boyle is a comedian. Right. You know, so it just never happened because they didn't quite know what to do with me. And then you I. You got money at this point? Or are you yeah, I got, like, I got okay. enough money where I can I can think about it a little bit. But right. I have no, the agencies are like, fuck her. Nobody wants to. Yeah, and when they wants, cut you loose, you're done. Oh, I was done. Yeah. I was so done. So then I came up with an idea. I called my stand-up agent, yeah. who I've been with since like 1994, who's a good dude, Steve Levine at ICM. And I called him up and I said, what is the worst time slot at the Laugh Factory? And he said, why? And I said, well, I've never had a good set at the store or the improv, but I've never really played the Laugh Factory. Right. And he said, I don't know, Wednesdays at 10 p.m. So I said, will you call Jamie Masada and ask if I can have Wednesdays at 10 p.m. and he can take the door and the drinks and I'll do it for free. And he said, 
I guess so. And it, and I had to sell them on that. Right. So I had to then talk to Jamie and say, what's your top? He said, okay, Wednesday's at 10. It's hard to get people to come in. Right. I said, I'll take it. So- um, Were you just trying to beat yourself up? No, I wanted anywhere where I could stand on stage and, and do what I do. And yeah. so being a promotional machine, I already was able to get on like some talk shows because of being on an, an NBC show. But I was also literally with my former assistant, Jessica, standing at Hollywood and Highland, handing out flyers yeah. and saying, hi, it's me, Kathy Griffin from television. Would you like to come see me do stand up? And then that's really what turned things around for me is I started doing, um, I would pick a month, a month that had five. So if there was a month that had five Mondays, five I would do, I, but, but maybe in the next month would have five Tuesdays. Right. So I would do five weeks in a row at the Laugh Factory and then Luckily, it got some traction, and within about three weeks, there was a line around the block. And then, as you and what know, were you, how did your act change? Though is that when every you week cut was loose? different? But did you? What did you tonally change? Were you, were there? Was it a no? You know, no uh, take no prisoners, no holds barred. Yes. Did you did you do something different? Were you like fuck it? Uh, it's all Fuck coming it. out now. No, who cares? I'm at a little comedy club. There, this is before and you're people at the end had, of your are tape, taping things with their cell right. phones. I would actually open the show with a tape I had, a VHS tape that I operated myself from the upstairs at the Laugh Factory. Yeah. And I would pause it and make funny comments. So right. my opener was I would show a tape from Mariah Carey on Cribs. Yeah. Being crazy. Yeah. So the tape, you know, the audience would laugh because they see Mariah Carey and they know it's funny. And, yeah. And then I would pause it and I would make a comment. So right. they would hear my voice. Voice. Right. Then I would do that for maybe five minutes. And then I would do my own intro, ladies and gentlemen, and make try to make it funny. You yeah. know her as Maxim's top 100 hot girls, bikini model, Kathy Griffin. Sure. Run downstairs. And I was always supposed to do an hour, and I always did two hours. So every week I would do a new two hours. Was that, but were you, what did you think that at that time was your, was your tone different? Where Was it the tone of somebody who'd had it with show business on some level? The tone was, it, the tone was getting more showbiz oriented. For example, like when I was doing Hot Cup of Talk, right. pri- prior to being, prior to being a regular on a television show, my act was more about, I'd say, kind of family and guys I was banging and stuff like that. But as I started working in Hollywood for real, that's when the whole like telling tales out of school, talking smack about celebrities, right. being honest about who was really naughty and nice during the commercial breaks. That's really how that started. Right. Once I started working with Brooke Shields. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't keep that stuff out of my act. Right. She was she was dating and married to Andre Agassi, and we were going on his jet to his house in Vegas. And then, of course, I thought his behavior was odd. And so later when he released his book, uh, Close, I believe it's called, yeah. he confessed that he was doing crystal meth during that period. And so I would be going on stage going, you know, I went to Andre Agassi's house this weekend and he sure is energetic. Like, I didn't even know. <laughs> and so then Brooke would be mad at me and she'd say, you can't talk about Andre in your act. And I'd say, I'll try not to. And then I'd hit the stage and I couldn't help myself because it was insane to me to see Andre Agassi on crystal meth. Well, what, what How kind can you keep that out of your act? And, and this is when you were doing The Laugh Factory. Yes. So, And I started doing more specials then. Right. Well, so I, mean, I just started you, doing you like the did, specials. You turned out specials every year, it seems like. I did 20 specials. I was Most inducted of, into the One of them for book. HBO and, the rest, and how many for... Well, I did two for HBO that they then sold to Comedy Central. And then after that, I did them for Bravo and now I own them. And so they're kind of like everywhere like you can some of them you can you can buy some of them you um just will see on reruns and you on did comedy four Central. comedy records i did no no gosh i have i well i have six grammy nominations so right. i did at least six i finally won this year for best comedy album congratulations the, the first woman to win since 1986 
That's I just want to say. Um, but as far as albums, I actually don't know the number because they I would make the specials albums. And then you add material. Right. So the kind of fun thing about the albums is it really is the stuff that is too horrible even for Bravo. Right. Is my t- my pride talking point. Now, two questions. Now, how does one, when did you start sort of kind of embracing, how does one become camp? Yeah. <laughs> and it, because there's only a few of you. And 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 how does one em- embrace that? When did you become shameless about plastic surgery? About about you know being outspoken, even if they are peers of yours. Right. I mean, how does what is the appeal to the gay and lesbian community? That how does that happen? Well, I think first of all, um, one thing is when I was doing open mic nights, it certainly wasn't limited to comedy open mic nights. Right. So when you're me and you have no skills and you just want to try to be funny you don't know how you know i mean i think i i did the infamous waiting in line at the improv like twice right and i went okay this is this is not working and so i would open up the la weekly and i would see gay clubs that had open mic nights i would go to a jazz club that had an open mic night because they would let a comedian do one set so i would i was and by the way i was dragging my parents to all of these so (laughs) while i'm bitching and joking about them they would either, you know, drive me because we all shared one Toyota Corolla or they would try and come and laugh and be supportive. And that part of it is like very touching. Yeah. And then once once I finally hooked up with you guys and kind of our crowd, right. I, I thought, well, at least I have people to kind of sit with at the coffee house or, you know, I would go watch Janine, you know, do every set or I would just ride with Margaret Cho right. on the way to a club. Judy Toll would just take me to the comedy store and I would just watch from the back and just be happy to be in the car with her. Right. So I was, but I always looked at you guys like, God, I just don't think I can do that. You know, I mean, I was, I can't write a joke to this day. I cannot write a setup and punchline joke to this day. It's, right. it's a story with jokes weaved in. Sure. But um, I, I really love all styles. So... I really enjoyed watching Judy Toll in the Growlings with me, then go do a set at the store. And then I enjoyed Margaret Cho. I remember watching her headline one time at Caroline's and I had never seen her do a club. I had only seen her do alt clubs. Yeah. So I was I was dazzled at how she was able to translate the kind of improvisational, tangential style of the alt clubs. And then all of a sudden she was headlining at Caroline's. And then because of being on an NBC show, I then started headlining at clubs. So I just want you to know, I went from bombing at coffee houses to then clubs calling and saying, oh, this girl is now so we getting- So we make some money. Right. Yeah. But how do you, like, when did you, did you ever see yourself early on as being this, uh, this character of you that you are now? I mean, at what point do you start? Uh, Im- well, do you mean like, d- how did the gays and I find each other? Well, kind of, but I mean, also, be, I think it has something to do with shamelessness. Yes. And and I and it doesn't sound like that was always part of your story. No, I think when you come from a family that is all about either being shame based or thinking they should be ashamed of something that, frankly, they shouldn't even be ashamed about, I think that then you know the typical cliche story it makes you want to go completely the opposite. And so, but it took you a while to do that. Yeah, but I did it early on. Like, I don't know if you remember this, but uh, when I got liposuction in like 1998, I used to show slides of the post lipo and it was people would just be practically vomiting because I really thought like, this is very authentic. This is so horrible and gross. It's funny. And granted, my bar for things being funny is too high. 
<laughs> for gross things being funny. Right. But I mean, that's what I thought was sort of, I don't want to say the norm, but I thought, well, if I had liposuction, I'm not going to lie about it, you know, so I can't just act like I had the flu for two weeks. Do you think that any of this transparency or any of this aggressive uh, exposure of your own self was a liability to you? I mean, you know, before you became what you are, did you ever think that people were like, no, nah, I don't want to, she's a little much. I think obviously certain people just when she's a little much. And then the good news is the people that were in were all in. And then that's what led to my life on the D-list. And th- but my That's life- really what was the game changer for me. Right. But once they, but once you, you got the opportunity to do exactly what you wanted to do, yeah. more people got all in. Yes. And and the the gay community was extremely supportive from the beginning. Well, I think I think because the show was so um, populated with gay people anyway. Yeah, it's it's you know I I mean I don't even know if I can articulate it. I mean the gay culture and I are so intertwined and have been since I was like a little kid that it was never a conscious thing to have like gay people on my reality show or right. for me to be you know the dealers would follow me as I hosted the gay porn awards. That's shit I was doing off camera. Right. So the thing about my life on the D-list is what's really the thing I'm really the most proud of is unlike today's quasi reality shows that really was a show where for six years they followed me around for six months a year hoping I would say something funny. Uh-huh. So we didn't manage manufacture situations i would have an offer come across my desk like do you want to host the gay porn awards and then maybe in my real life frankly maybe i would have been like "Mm, i don't think so but i would have been thinking well we have filming coming up this is a genuine offer that came through let's put it on the show so stuff like that you know i performed on a gay cruise i performed on a gay flight all the way to new zealand you know i those were job offers that came to me off season right i would just say you know, if it's during season, yes, that'll be a funny episode. If it's off season, I'd be like, hey, guess what? Is there any way we can hold off on this and then we'll make it part of my life on the D-list? Right. But I mean, the same thing was happening off camera as on camera. And I would say to Bravo every year that they didn't pick up my show because they would make me wait until the very last second. I would always say to them, you know, I'm going to do this show with or without cameras. Right. So either you can document my life on the D-list or I'm just going to keep living my life on the D-list. And you won two Emmys. Yes. That's amazing. Incredible. It's incredible. And let me just say this. They're hard to win. Yeah. They're really hard. So I get bitter about assholes that leave the Emmys early or lose them or say my kid broke them or I left them in the bathroom or I'm I'm not sure where they are. Uh They're fucking hard to win. They're hard. Okay. (laughs) A Grammy's very hard to win. I had five years of losing in a row. No one's even been nominated six years in a row before me. So every year I lost, I was pissed. Well, it must feel amazingly gratifying to have defined yourself on your own terms. And then the world was like, okay, we'll take her. Right. They, they kind of <laughs> had to. Eventually, they just sort of had to. No matter whoever, no, no matter whatever peers you might have had or what other yes. com- whatever comics are going like, fuck her. I wasn't going away. Yeah. That's right. It was like my, like my good friend Cher, also very in the LGBT community. You know, Cher famously said, you know, after the Holocaust, there's going to be Cher and cockroaches. And I put me right in there. Share cockroaches. So it's that shamelessness and that persistence and that. uh, I don't have a choice. I love how you're acting like I have a choice. There's no one has ever emerged. There's there's never been a Lorne Michaels. There's never been a network that said, oh, we're going to court you. No one's courted me. My success came in my garage. Believe me, I get it. I mean, I'm 50. Yes. And it happened four years ago. But that's why I love you. It's years and years and years of doing it and doing it and doing it. Because I didn't see any other choice. No. There was no other choice. No. I didn't know how it was going to go down. 
But what was it like for you watching the bros? I call straight guys bros. Well, well, the, well, the problem with me was that either you're going to let bitterness define you, which is not appealing. Mm. That at some point you have to, you know, you have to give in to the the humbling to find where you're going to go next. You can't just, you know, you know, expect to be angry and entitled, mm-hmm. and so, and you can't function from that place. I mean, at some point you must have felt like I'm fucked. Well, my whole thing was to laugh at it the whole time. I mean, hence calling yeah, the show My Life on the D-List. Right, but but there wasn't a moment there before that where you're like, it's over. No, because it was always... And look, I'm there Just right now. It was, yeah. it was like, once again, you know, like we'll talk about late night, right? Mm-hmm. So I've been... I've literally heard the phrases in the last month. A, we're not considering any females for that position. B, you're not part of the conversation. I've mm-hmm. heard those two in meetings in the last month. <laughs> so when you when you can, you know, I'm so used to hearing, you know, the chick thing and the, you're not part of the conversation that I just have to figure out a way to insert myself into the conversation. Is and this something so, you want to do? Yes, I would love. You know what I would love to do? I what? would love to bring back a show like the old Tom Snyder show. Remember, yeah, he smoked the cigarette yeah, and he was yeah, rant, bitter and rant. I'm, I'm hung up guest. on that. That's what I do in I'm here. I'm hung up on Costas, the old Bob Costas yeah. with his encyclopedic memory. Yeah. I love the idea of, of of just the art of conversation. Sure. And I feel like what the next big thing is, and this is me standing alone, but you know- I think I might be there with you. I feel that the next big thing that's yeah. going to be cool and trendy is as simple as a return to legitimacy. Because I feel like, as much as I love to make fun of the housewives and the Kardashians, I really feel that collectively, even people- Authenticity. There's something about just watching people who know what they're doing do their thing. No, absolutely. I, so, I, I'm completely on board with that. And it, But it's it's hard to sell because it's so pared down and simple. Well, they simple, don't trust it. Nobody will buy yeah, That's right. They don't trust it. They're that's like, right. I don't- Where are the bells and whistles? That's right. Right. They don't- That's right. And I know, I've I also know. had people like Phil Rosenthal say- I'm going to tell you a dirty secret that no network head will ever tell you. So I'm thinking Phil Rosenthal. He's sure. made a, a mint from Everybody Loves Raymond. Right. I think Ray Romano's hilarious. Yeah. I'm going to really listen. He says what none of these network people will tell you is that a female-driven comedy is not going to sell sell in syndication. And I, I took that in and I said, you mean like I Love Lucy? Or Roseanne. Or Grace Under Fire Grace or Murphy Fire. Brown. Or, Brown. Yeah. That's right. And so- Don't listen to him. But I'm just saying, these things happen to this day. And so you're right. I, I don't get bitter and scream at these people. You know, Ben Silverman um, said to me one time about 30 Rock, he kept saying, it's Alec's show, it's Alec's show, and this and this, and Alec, Alec. And finally, and I don't even know Tina Fey that well. And I certainly never had Lorne Michaels doing my heavy lifting. That's right. for sure. I, right. I wish, I wish. Yeah. But anyway, I- um said to him, you know, as a joke, I said, I mean, I just so you know, as a viewer, I would consider that to be Tina's show. I mean, I it's sort of obviously based on her life and her experience, but I think Alec is brilliant in it. Yeah. And, you know, he denies that he said that. But I'm just saying, I think that that, that rolls off the tongue of people so easily that I, like you, am very much in the habit of, I'm not coming in the front door. Right. So I'm looking for the window and the side door. Yeah. And I'm right there again today, trying to figure it out. Side door, how do I get it going? Sure. Or I'll just be outside in my truck honking. <laughs> <laughs> but here's what I'm not buying. Are you buying... Or have you let go of the idea? I'm sure you've had all these meetings in the last 10 years that it's all about YouTube. It's all no, about the web that. show. No, no, no. I never really bought anything. Okay, thank you. Back me up. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, it will always seem, well, you get to a point where it's like you realize during those conversations that they need me more than I need them. And they're not putting any money up front. They but did a any, little, but any not, revenue, not Kathy Griffin money. Well, what I'm saying is, yeah. look, I love, I think Funny or Die is great, but yeah. the last time I checked, it seems like Will Ferrell and Adam McKay make all the money from Funny or Die. Well, yeah, I just so don't it's know. It's kind of just like a network. I think people are watching TV like that, but they're watching TV from TV like that. I still fairly difficult to get people to do uh you know watch stuff that is innately on the web yeah you, you know other than cat videos or things that people send them and also the dirty little secret that i i don't know why this this should be on the cover to me of of deadline or reporter or whatever every single day which is tv is still the most watched medium yeah no absolutely it doesn't like it's great that the guy who does the history of dance gets all those views but as far as just pound for pound viewers television is still the yeah, most still, watched yeah, medium they sit down in their living room and they do it. so let me ask you this how do you feel about yourself now like in what way always like professionally personally well i mean do you are you, your personal life is that a struggle um i mean i, mean, I know I, you got a new guy and yeah, you've I been through new, some shit i'm not yeah, I've been through some shit. I mean, I am pretty angst ridden. I, um, you know, I, I can't, I have the, I call it the hamster wheel. I have a lot of trouble sleeping. I'm constantly writing in my head, which I enjoy. I have a stand up comedy disorder. I can't, I can't stop doing stand up. I love it. I don't care if it's Carnegie Hall or a Racino. Right. But do you, are, can do I you, just stop you? What? You have no reaction to me saying I played a Racino. What is that? Thank you. You yeah. don't even know what it is. I, I and mean, I played one two weeks ago. No. It's a combination casino and racetrack. Yes. Did you do all right? Yeah, I did all right. I, I I probably actually got paid more than Carnegie. But the point is, I love doing stand up so much that like when my friends give me shit about like what are you doing playing a racino, it's like it didn't even occur to me to go. Oh, that's right. I I go with whatever is the market value. So I um. Oh God, I'm going to quote Jay Leno, and I know alternative comics hate him, but he said something very helpful to me, which is he said, you know, he does all the stand up, and as you know, he doesn't spend the stand. He was yeah, he's never he touched the Tonight Show money. money. Yeah. Okay, but um, he said that he uh, went to his buyers at one point after 2008 and said, "Look, you guys have been good to me all these years. Pay me whatever you can pay me now." And I was like, "Wow, that's baller!" Like when you can just say that. So I. You know, I don't want to say I'll work for nothing, but I'm not crazy. I'm not, you know, I only have to have the private jet and I only I only take $100,000 a show. Like, I'm not Kevin Hart. Right. You know. But do you like... And I don't even know Kevin Hart. I'm just assuming he gets insane money. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're, you're definitely operating at that, at, at that level. You're at a high pay point. But I mean, do you feel... You don't feel like you're done in any way. You don't feel like... You, oh, no. Do, are you on... Are, are you happy? I'm going to get the, a talk show. I, I know watch that... Me. You watch. Like, is someone like Chelsea Handler a nemesis of yours? Not at all. But I am, I am, I am almost amused by how a woman so successful is like wh- whatever she's feeling with that job, like bored with it or done with it, or you know, what she say? It's a sad, sad place to live on on that network. I'm just, you know, okay. So I hope you're dazzled by this. So two weeks ago, I had dinner with wait for it, Maury Povich, mm-hmm. and wow. I worship him. Okay, I worship the secretly loaded. Okay. Here's why: I've met Maury Povich, I've met Jerry Springer, I've had dinner with Judy Scheinlin. I am fascinated by people that are what I call secret ballers. So I'm fascinated by what makes them tick and how they roll and why they work that way. And um, I had someone else, I guess I shouldn't say the person's name, but someone else who's a secret baller who's beyond loaded. And she said to me, um, 
she wasn't, I, I was reading those stupid Forbes lists and I called her and as a joke, I said, I know you have more money than all these people. And she said, why would I want to be on the Forbes list? Yeah. What do I, what do I want my kids to get kidnapped? I don't right. want to be on the Forbes list. Right. So I thought that was funny that she's so loaded yeah. that she thinks an idiot would want to be on the Forbes list. So anyway, I said to Maury Povich and I went to two tapings of the show, which was, of course was hilarious and it's all theater. But I said, um, are you having as much fun as it looks like you are? And he said, I really am. And he's 75. And I said, why? Why are you having? I mean, tell me the secret. And he said, because I'm old. And I just totally got that. And so when you asked me about Chelsea, I, I am friends with Chelsea. I respect her tremendously. I think she's hilarious. I'm just saying that at 53, I think that you have a different attitude about having a talk show and having great success. So you're telling me you know how to have fun. I'm telling you that I'm old enough to, if I had a talk show, I would be pretty freaking happy. And when I had my talk show on Bravo, and when I had my life on the D-list, I was frazzled, but I was real happy to be making people laugh. Love it. Well, I uh, I enjoy talking to you. My pleasure. Do you feel good about it? Absolutely. Okay, Kathy. Okay, that's it. That's our show. As per usual, go to WTFPod.com for all your WTF Pod needs. Get the app if you don't have the app. Check the calendar at WTF Pod. Uh, if you want to know where I'm going, if you want links to any of that stuff, uh, leave a comment if you have a Facebook page, which is uh, how we do it now. But you can do it right on the site. What else? Oh, let's celebrate life. Boomer lives! <laughs> 